Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BA98, The Third Party, Do We Need One? From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 208, November 21, 1989. Tonight... John Lofton, Otto Scott, Tim Vaughn, and myself are going to discuss a question that was suggested by some of you and also by John. Especially after the last election, November of a year ago, a number of you expressed your disillusionment with both parties. You felt that what we needed was something new, something different, something to express a faith other than pragmatism. It is interesting that a number of uh, very diverse groups, including the feminists, have expressed a desire for some kind of third party. Well, that's going to be our subject, the third party. Do we need one? Why do we need one? Before we get into that, I'm going to call attention to an article which will probably appear in National Review uh, by Lou Rockwell, Jr. And the title, Ayn Rand Really is Dead, The Resurgence of Christian Libertarianism. And what Lou Rockwell says in this article is that increasingly people are disillusioned with the right and with the left. And as a result, there are Christians who are libertarian who are saying we need something more than the uh, current libertarianism which is dedicated to immoralism and to um, hatred of Christianity. Ironically, someone who 30 years ago was very much an enemy of uh, the Christian faith and one of the founders, if not the founder of modern libertarianism, Murray Rothbard, in 1971 warned libertarians, and I quote, the Christian ethic is, in the words of the old hymn, a rock of ages. Those who abandon that rock sink into the quagmire of the capricious and the bizarre. And a quote. And Rockwell adds, but the quagmire prevailed as Randian atheists and Woodstockian drifters came to dominate libertarianism. Unquote. Well, this is one of a number of very interesting uh, straws in the wind. John, would you like to uh, go from that point and uh, yes. make a general statement? Well, what uh, prompted me to suggest the topic of the possibility of a third party, do we need a third party, do we need a real second party, uh, it was prompted by a couple of statements I've heard recently uh, in Washington, D.C., on a recent 700 Club uh, broadcast, uh, Pat Robertson was uh, deploring the fact that the Republican Party 
its chairman, specifically Lee Atwater, had taken a very equivocal position on abortion, saying that there was room in the Republican tent for all kinds of views on abortion, the baby killers, those who were against the baby killing, and that he was sure that all these views could be accommodated by the party. George Bush has said basically uh, the same thing, I believe, that there's a room in this tent, this idea of the party as tent, not unlike a circus. Uh, it's, it's sort of the uh, metaphor of the moment. And Pat Robertson said flat out that uh, if this evasion on abortion continued, that there would definitely be a third party. He said, uh, you can count on that as sure as I'm sitting here. Now, I interpret that to mean that uh, Pat Robertson <laughs> was announcing his candidacy again for president, possibly uh, as a third party candidate, as he had been urged uh, last time to run, but didn't. Uh, so that wasn't too surprising. The second statement regarding a third party, <clears throat> to me, was much more surprising, much more significant. And it was a statement made by Pat Buchanan on the cable news network program Crossfire on November 15th of 1989. He was attacking uh, this latest effort uh, of Congress to raise its pay, and Pat blasted both the Republican Party and the Democrats for becoming a permanent bureaucracy which he said it will take a third party to get rid of. Now, uh, since I came out here, uh, Otto uh, and I talked, and uh, Otto had uh, also noted that uh, observation by Pat, and he, I think he was, uh, and we'll say shortly, I think, equally surprised that Pat said this. And the reason it's surprising is because Pat <clears throat> has basically been uh, very much of a... Uh, defender of the Republican Party, and when he's been inside uh, the White House, uh, he's been a very vigorous defender of the Republican Party, sometimes in a way that I think uh, was sort of silly, and uh, I would like to believe that he, had, he said things when he was inside that he didn't really believe. So when Pat Buchanan talks about uh, this bipartisan permanent bureaucracy in Washington made up of Democrats and Republicans and says that it will take a third party to get rid of. He did not say some people are saying it might take a third party. Pat was angry and said it will take a third party to get rid of. Uh, I think it's uh, very significant and it's very likely that we may see a third party. Well, that's one of those consummations devoutly to be desired as far as I'm concerned. We have right now a rather spectacular thing underway. We have a great government, enormous in size, expensive, baroque, biting its own tail, sitting up in the middle of the air without any foundation of support among the people, whatever. This government has lost the respect of the world, of the world. It has no respect for itself. And uh, if we don't have a third party, it will mean that the American people have absolutely gone brain dead and have lost all their courage. A very good point. Uh, Tim, before I let you speak, let me follow up there. One of the things that 
I feel very strongly about, and a great many people I find feel very strongly about, because I hear about it very often, is the contrast uh, that is set forth in the Baker case. Now, Jim Baker was obviously a sleazy character. He deserved to be punished. But 45 years? He did not hurt this country as much as Speaker Wright of the House of Representatives did. And what Wright did to this country and to our civil government affects every person. And yet he has a pension of over 85000 I believe it's uh, $87,000 a year. All kinds of perquisites that go with it. Is a highly respected man drawing fat fees as he speaks everywhere. He's getting invitations with fat speaking fees. What sort of people would pay that man to come and Oh, speak? universities and various business groups and so on. Tony Coelho has not suffered. Garcia, has a congressman, has been convicted and is still in Congress. Barney Frank, with his uh, homosexual uh, prostitute friend, uh, whose bedroom was turned into a place of prostitution, is still in Congress, and nothing was done about it. We have five senators who cost this country two billion, not million, but billion dollars in a savings and loan bailout, uh, who are paid off. And uh, there'll be an investigation. Uh, it's pretty hard to escape, but what's going to be done? It'll be like all the others, but we're going to get legislation aimed against the church as a result of the Baker case an extension of IRS powers. Congress is about to act, but not against itself. So, there is a bankruptcy since neither party is really doing anything. And if anything happens to these senators, it'll be because of public outcry. And then it'll be minimal. Nothing such as has happened to Baker. So, uh, People are morally disgusted, sick at heart about what is happening to this country. Uh, Tim, now I'll let you uh, No, I ought to express my opinion better than I could have <laughs> myself. So I do like River Road, but I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, <clears throat> when they put forth this recent uh, so-called pay raise proposal and ethics bill, uh, uh, which is an interesting combination since the request for the pay raise is unethical, but they're calling it a combined pay raise ethics bill. And you saw that picture on the evening news of uh, Congressman Foley in the House and Senator Mitchell in the Senate coming forth and leading behind them like little puppy dogs, Robert Michael, the Illinois congressman, and who? Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich. He's supposed to be the big new conservative uh, firebrand, the maverick, you know, the hope of uh, conservatism, the new conservatism, and there he is. He's in the uh, halter there, just has his little prepared statement, and just, I will say, he looked a little bit ashamed. He looked just uh, around the left eye, he looked a little <laughs> ashamed, but he read his lines. Everybody was on board. 
all of them going along with that thing. So I, I don't know how the third party thing uh, is going to manifest itself. I don't think uh, before the Republican Party became the second party uh, over another moral issue, slavery, uh, uh, that people were sure exactly how a new party was going to manifest itself. But I do know that the Republican Party has uh, treated Christians uh, in many parts of the country, the, the state Republican parties, the National Republican Party has, treated Christians like dogs. Yeah. They've been, been very explicit in some states in saying Christians keep out. They've treated they've treated the right to lifers like dogs. They don't want them in the party. So uh, when this thing comes about, the Republicans will have uh, caused it. Well, I think you may be right. I hadn't thought of it before that abortion is a rallying issue. But there are a number of positions that a possible third party could take which would reform our government without revolutionizing it. I received a manuscript just a few days ago by a scientist down in Baton Rouge. And he made the obvious, he was talking, uh, he was shredding uh, apart some of the environmental claims and uh, the greenhouse effect and all that, which he just dismissed in very nice language as nonsensical. But he made an observation in passing, which is very important. He said, our Congress creates goals in the name of the law and leaves the means of achieving that goal to the agencies. Mm. And he said the agencies then sit down and create a whole raft of regulations which are printed in the Federal Register and which have the force of law. Yes. But, he says, only Congress is supposed to make the law. <laughs> These agencies, he said, should be restricted to gathering information and that they could then give to Congress, and Congress should do its own work and specify what the law is supposed to be. That, he said, was, I realize, when that suggestion meant that we would wipe out a whole fourth anonymous, faceless branch of government that is monitoring our lives from cradle to grave. Mm -hmm. What a what an issue. I want to comment on that. Uh, in his book, The Twilight of Authority, Robert Nesbitt called uh, this passing of power to these administrative agencies, the new despotism. Mm -hmm. He said that that was a really, one, in his opinion, it was the greatest shift of power, I guess he meant in our government, in the past half century. This uh, Congress, in effect, uh, sort of drawing up, you remember the connect the dots drawings uh, you used to have in, in uh, grade school, where Congress will uh, generally... Uh, put two or three dots on a piece of paper, then it gives the pencil to the uh, administrative agency and it draws a thousand dots, and then the Congress says, hey, we didn't, we didn't mean that, and then the congressman can hold hearings and they all look very indignant as they question uh, their own creatures there in front of them for exceeding, well, they can't charge them with exceeding their authority because they spelled out no real authority. They gave themselves the authority. In fact, the religious right, so-called, uh, uh, Christian school movement, uh, thank God, was spawned by this usurpation of power. Remember when the IRS, <clears throat> as they say, promulgated a number of guidelines to bind uh, 
Christian schools uh, without any uh, uh, such d a demand from the Congress. And, of course, uh, uh, every witness that came, and I think there were over 200 of them. That was, was one of yes, them. Yes. Everyone was against these things, and the IRS... Uh, I think withdrew the things. Now, let, let, me, yes. let me add one well, let, footnote. Let yes. me okay. just correct okay. you at one point. Yes. Uh, the IRS was for those regulations, but they did not uh, inaugurate them. Reagan did. Reagan and Meese. Put and the out. IRS was very happy with them. All right, now wait a minute. I think the, uh, since you're correcting me here, mm -hmm. I think the chronology is a little out of whack because Reagan was not in power well, in, at the in, hearing in, you're talking about but after in the, the 70s, hearing in the 70s oh, after yes. the hearing there, yeah. uh, there was another Bill Crane yes. later on the, yes. you're right there were that, two incidents it's, it's easy to get confused here 78 and then uh, the I'm other going, one on yeah. 81 or 2 you're right it's easy to get confused when I you're talking corrected. about when you talk about save this tape uh, <laughs> it's easy to get confused when you're talking about which usurpation of power yes. by the IRS but uh, I, I had a little opportunity, uh, I had an opportunity to work several days trying to find out how does a regulation get promulgated. I tried to find how the regulations actually came about, who thought of them, because they clearly did not originate in the Congress. <clears throat> and to make a long story short, after many days of working with the uh, public affairs officer of the IRS, he finally located the attorney in the IRS who was a GS-15 who one morning looked at his Sunday New York Times newspaper. He saw some little item about a, uh, a Christian school and the attorney said, well, we have to stop this. So that that's the way all these regulations came about. That's the way these uh, hearings came about is that one guy said he didn't like something he saw in the New York Times and so he started promulgating. Well, here we have what I would call the real genesis of a third party because there have been two successful third parties in the country. The first, of course, was the Republican Party over the slavery issue. But it was, uh, it was a more issue involved than simply slavery, as we know, tariffs and so on. Also, certain rights which were established as a result of the Civil War. The Bull Moose Party in 1912 by Theodore Roosevelt was much more left-wing than people remember because Roosevelt moved over towards socialism to a considerable degree. But he had one very interesting, I think, issue that he brought up, and he called it the right of judicial recall. He said that whenever the Supreme Court of the United States made a constitutional ruling, the people should be allowed to vote that up or down in a national plebiscite. Otherwise, he said, we, are, we will be at the mercy of nine unelected men. Now, that was a, not a bad suggestion because at this point, we have a runaway Supreme Court, not only a runaway Supreme Court, we have a runaway federal judiciary because district judges are now making constitutional rulings. Well, let me throw in something as a problem. I think the, uh, we've had many influential and powerful third parties, the populist movement, true, uh, elected congressmen, governors, and more.
whole series of third parties that have appeared and uh, shifted the course of American history and then disappeared. One of the problems we face now is a very, very dangerous mentality on the part of the people of this country. Uh, they want to start big, and they want victory now. One of the things that has uh, been a roadblock is that uh, men of wealth who could start very important things are not interested unless they can start big, create a national thing overnight, which doesn't work. On top of that, people want to win in a single election or on a single issue. When Reagan was elected, a great many Christians and conservatives alike uh, acted as though the millennium had arrived. <laughs> and immediately after the election, the income of conservative organizations took a disastrous no a nosedive. Uh, they would lose sometimes uh, two-thirds, four-fifths, or five-sixths of their income immediately because the assumption was the American millennium had arrived because Reagan was in the White House. Don't you remember? Liberalism was defeated. Mm. Yes. It was, it was over. Yes. Now, any time a third party is mentioned, no one talks about the long haul, about building for the future, can they win in 92? Well, as long as Americans have that mentality they're going to get uh, more of what they have had, only worse, and this country will go to hell in a hurry because they didn't grow to be uh, mature men and women overnight. And it takes time to educate people, to develop a strategy, to develop a party. It's step by step, here a little, there a little. Well, it, it's also a matter of <coughs> principles. A third party should stand for more than a single issue. Mm -hmm. A third party should lift its sights up to look at the nation as a whole. Yes. And, and look at the structure of our government as it is. And then say, how can we restore this government to a rational proportion? Mm -hmm. How can we re restore the limits of government? because we are running into an unlimited government, mm -hmm. and this is the monster that we're confronted well, with. Well, now, now you're, you've stopped preaching and done gone to meddling, as they say. You're absolutely uh, correct. Conservatives used to uh, run on a platform uh, of, you know, what have you undone for me lately? But, of course, they come to Washington, as, uh, as one of them said, they come to Washington thinking... Uh, that it's a cesspool, but after a few years they find it's a hot tub. <laughs> feels pretty good. Let me give you an example. Uh, a recent article in the Washington Post by Ed Fulner, president of the Heritage Foundation. No, we know it, Ed. <laughs> How you doing, Ed? Hi, Ed. <laughs> he says uh, in this article, uh, I'll just skip around to get give you the flavor of it. For all his faults, George Bush could be a godsend for conservatives. God, God, at least, is not capitalized in this sentence. 
Bush is the right man for the times. If Ronald Reagan was the architect of radical thinking, that's a good one right there. Uh, I don't think he thought at all. Uh, what we need now is an engineer to build on Reagan's foundation. Uh, I think the engineer was Carter. I don't think Bush was an, is an engineer. Uh, Bush understands the market. <laughs> Maybe that means when he goes to the grocery. Uh, education is another area in which Bush and conservatives are singing from the same hymn book, if not always the same key. Hmm. Whatever, whatever that means. I think what marks these statements is their terminal ambiguity. <laughs> By being a steady leader, Bush could be what Harry Truman was to Franklin Roosevelt. Oh, That's supposed to be good news. Roosevelt didn't speak to Truman. I don't know. Now, Ed Fulner, uh, I pick on him because he not only typifies the problem, he is the problem. He, he's one of the problems. He's on more than one government panel board. Uh, he's a conservative who has been co-opted by the government. He's not a member of any opposition. He's almost a doorkeeper at the Oval Office. He's like that uh, Dr. Doolittle push mapoya with two heads. Uh, oh, Ed, doesn't, Ed doesn't know if he's in the private sector or the public sector. He's been, he, he was a cheerleader uh, uh, for, for Reagan. Uh, he is a cheerleader for Bush. Uh, conservatives that uh, used to stand in opposition, like Human Events, Human Events still does. Human Events, uh, the weekly conservative publication, is an honest uh, critic of Bush, and it was of Reagan, but Fulner typifies your Washington conservative now. He's totally sold out. Well, he's got a good argument. Look at the money he and Heritage have, and look at what you and I have, John. <laughs> well, I never thought of it that way. Maybe he's got a point in this column. Yeah. <laughs> in other words, compromise pays. That's a moral the, fact. The headline, and this is the moral problem we face today. That is a big point. The headline on the column is, Bush... Less is more. <laughs> That's well, what that Washington talk. More or less what you're, you're both really saying that John mentioned abortion and you're talking about morality. Uh, the American nation is interesting. Its intellectual level has declined after its founding generation went off the stage. Since then, there has not really been what you would call an American intellectual class. We have academics instead. The, but a third party that took a moral position on the great issues of our time, which is what the people need, would certainly, I think, succeed. Not overnight, but one of the ways it would succeed, would have to succeed, would be to convince the average American who has been browbeaten and bullied mm -hmm. that it is possible to change things. Mm -hmm. I know, I do a lot of traveling, and I sit in a plane, and unless I speak first, the other fellow will not speak. I've, I've tested this all the way across the country. The minute I speak, well, then he'll speak. I think I'm the other fellow. That's why I'm not okay. in agree. <laughs> and, uh, but he's usually very guarded about what he says. Sure. He is scared to death. He's not going to tell you anything significant. Well, you might be from the government. I don't know you what the core source of the fear is, but this is a fearful country. Well, they mm -hmm. may figure you have the IRS look, out of. Oh, yes. <laughs> I have to get out my uh, heavy glasses or something. <laughs> 
Well, you know what we're talking about here is what uh, George Wallace said a long time ago, that there wasn't a dime's worth of difference between the two parties, that you put them both in a sack and shake them up, he used to say, and it didn't matter which one tumbled out. What's the worst part of it is that elections don't seem to change anything. No. Well, that's why fewer and fewer people are voting in national elections. Well, I said the same thing long before Wallace, and I, it was not original with me. So that observation has been around Probably for a generation. A Probably less than a dime's worth of difference now. Well, to get back to Lou Rockwell again briefly, he points out that uh, the Libertarian Party was started with a lot of the Ayn Randian baggage, which meant... She exalted the virtue of selfishness, hated God, and thought Christianity ought to be stamped out. And he goes on to say, and I quote, The Libertarian Party, founded 1971, was infected from the beginning with Rand's pet hatreds, albeit with some odd lacunae. New Ageism was welcomed, for example, and the party's Randian hippie coalition even embraced a witch. Only one group was made to feel unwelcome, Christians, unquote. Well, the sad fact is that has applied as well to the Republican and the Democratic parties. They've made it clear they do not want Christians. Now, the answer to that may be a bit difficult. We have had Christian parties in recent years. In fact, there is one in formation in Canada right now. Whether it'll get off the ground or not, I don't know. For a time in uh, Europe, uh, some parties that were self-consciously Christian and by name, especially Catholic parties, were very powerful. But again, uh, the weakness of those parties was that they um, had a general affirmation of church loyalty, but you could not be sure at all times what they stood for, because the men who came under the party uh, label had a variety of opinions. And while they were often better than some of the other parties, there was nothing in the way of a clear-cut statement. And I think for a third party to succeed, it's going to take time, but it's also going to take uh, having a perspective that embraces more than a single issue, that is a, an across-the-boards Christian position, so that it will be Christian not by label, but in terms of an approach to the problems of our time. I think that's important. I noticed that the Christian parties of Europe are not particularly Christian. No. And the to call a party Christian is almost to ask for an argument. Yes. But if you took principled positions that are consonant with Christianity then I think you would get the orthodox uh, and all across the board. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Ayn Rand stressed was, as Lou Rockwell brings out, that there was 
a total hostility between faith and freedom. And she's not the only one who says this. Anytime you have an, a columnist writing about the church and state issue, they assume that Christianity is totalitarian. They make, they invented that. Yes. And what we need to do is to educate people to this. Uh, Norm Geisler, of course, uh, supposedly a Christian. And I say supposedly because of the outrageous statement which he loves to repeat from coast to coast, that what we want is not a Christian America, we want a free America. Yeah, we don't. he said we don't want a biblical America, we want a moral America. Well, that's illiterate because our, all our freedoms come from a Christian foundation. This is a Christian civilization. Christianity is what taught people the meaning of the individual soul. That's right. Everything we have <clears throat> comes from that. The, the pagan totalitarian societies from which Christianity broke out the human race had no idea of freedom. There was no freedom in Rome, there was no freedom in Greece, there was no freedom in any of the non-Christian countries or civilizations. I, I think what uh, we have to try to get away from is the definition of totalitarian as necessarily bad. Uh, I mean, I think the average person, when you say totalitarianism, they think of communism, but Christianity is totalitarian in the sense of it. it's a sovereign God who is the God of everything. But then so is the Republican Party platform, <laughs> totalitarian. If you ever read one of the platforms, or the, or the Democratic platform, they're totalitarian. I mean, they're, they may not achieve totalitarianism, but that's their desire. When they write the platform, they try to spell out every single thing. You're using totalitarian as yes. a term of organization. Yes. Uh, Christopher Dawson once said that... That's, that's, uh, that's kind of stretching it a bit. Yeah. Dawson, Christopher Dawson once said that, you know, Christianity was failing in modern times because it did, oh, he was writing about why Nazism had taken over so easily in Germany, and he said because Christianity had been insufficiently totalitarian. Well, insufficient, it, it lost its authority, it lost its moral authority, Total and therefore authority, all yes. its authority. Yes. Now, authority is not a bad thing. Well, <coughs> so this is where, but we're, Getting in here, if we were to, if somebody, not we, but I, I've always taken the position as far when such subjects arise that if people begin to talk about what can be done, mm -hmm. then a movement has been born. Mm -hmm. It's already underway, that's right. And that's why that's you were right. I think you said it. Uh, <clears throat> if there is a third party, it's not going to be because a uh, a bunch of uh, conservative uh, or any other kind of fundraisers got together in a building in Washington D.C. and made a mailing and and created this thing. It's going to come from the grassroots of this country, and the, the pe those people are going to tell us what the issues are going to be. The main thing is to get the people to start thinking about what to do because otherwise they are simply sliding into oblivion. Yes. One of the things that, oh, it's been perhaps 16 years ago, uh, 
Bill Richardson told me when we were in Sacramento. And I was speaking to members of the Senate. It was interesting because they have a high order of intelligence. But they have a totally present-oriented perspective. And uh, I commented on uh, my amazement at the type of questioning and yet the limited perspective. Uh, He didn't use the word existentialist, but that's in effect what he said they represented, the moment. And he said, they all know that uh, except in rare instances, voters do not have a memory that extends over 90 days, that whatever he may have done is forgotten in 90 days, so that what they have to think of is the here and now. Neither the voter's memory, for good or for ill, extends to any length of time. What have you done for me lately, is the premise. So they are completely divorced from long-range thinking. Otto's pointed out that the business world is oriented that way because of the report to the uh, shareholders. Every three months. Every three months. So we have a culture now that has become existentialist. And uh, as a result, the voters themselves, as the problem with their existentialist mentality, are not ready to look at the long haul. It's going to take time and work to be shaken out of that uh, existentialist well, mentality. They're, it's going to be perhaps the judgment of God plus conversion plus a, a reshaping of their minds. I have figured out that the attention span of your of your average voter is about the length of an MTV video. Uh, I think an example of what you talk about How here... How long is that? Think about as long as it took me to say that. <laughs> it's not very long. It's about two and a half minutes. Well, I think I, a current example of what's being talked about here is the, uh, the bloodbath in China. It now seems like ancient history. Yes. When they yes. murdered all those people, students, right. others... It's a horrible thing. It, but it was covered over by the next day's news. Mm-hmm. Now all the American, I mean, American businessmen, government officials are going back in. Well, the government is encouraging them to do that. Sure. But I had a lesson on the, uh, on, on the public, and I've been dealing with the public a long time, various ways. When I wrote that silent majority speech to Rex Blazier at Ashland, uh, he, he gave that speech to the Chicago Men's Club, and he went. He was a fraternity brother of the publisher of the Chicago Tribune. So I called the publisher's office and talked to the guy's secretary or assistant, and said, "My book, my man is a fraternity brother of your guy, and uh, I think it would be a good idea if you assigned somebody to cover the speech." So he did. And you remember the speech. It was if uh, all this disorder and anarchy and whatnot, and everyone said, well, somebody's going to come along and stop all this one of these days. Well, the guys that come along are the ones who do it. 
And in those countries where they were silent involuntarily, they're now silent voluntarily, they're now silent involuntarily. So you better speak up. Don't be a member of the silent majority. Words to that effect. When it went on the broad tape, and within a week, there were silent majority committees. And we got mailbags with American flags in them. Rex got so scared he wouldn't speak again in public for a year. <laughs> but it was a real lesson to me. Because if you hit the right button, and nobody, of course, knows where the button is, well, strange things happen. Well, uh, to go back to what I said earlier, I learned something very interesting in the early 30s, when I was finishing high school and starting college work, it was from a woman who had made her money in the post-World War One era playing the piano in a movie theater. Oh, sure. You I remember? remember uh, sure, I remember. That. We used to cheer when we saw her walk down the aisle yes, toward the piano. Uh, there would be mood music to go with the... Uh, <laughs> Light cavalry uh, overture. Yes. And she said, uh, the movies did something very interesting to the American character. When they first started, of course, there was a total absorption and fascination with everything. But the essence of the movie was fast action and the speeded up tempo you know of the old silent pictures so that people look jerky because they're going around so rapidly you know, on a speeded up film and she said very quickly the people got used to the whole idea of action especially since there was no speech an occasional uh, written thing in the film to indicate conversation and when they got acquainted with that, it suddenly changed the character of the film because now things had to move. And whereas, say, in some of the earliest films, if the hero hugged the heroine and held her in a long, passionate kiss, as was very common in those days because that was considered very daring and romantic on the screen, after a while, by the mid-twenties, it no longer worked. Because if it were more than so many seconds, they found, people would start laughing, whistling, stamping their feet, making a disturbance, get on with it. That was the whole thing. So we now have uh, a couple of generations that have been bred, up, uh, bred on this speeded-up action Get with it. Short attention uh, span. Short attention span, exactly. So we have people today that have a short attention span and are very difficult for anyone who's trying to accomplish something uh, to change this country to work with. But the quick, again, it carries me back to not too long ago. I can't get rid of it. This fellow who said to me in a scornful way, who reads? Mm -hmm. And I said, people who give orders to people like you. Good. Now, the things, the issues we're talking about would only affect the best minds in the country. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, if it's true that 20, 30, 40 million people in this country are believing Christians and don't go to church, they probably don't go to political parties either. It's going to be very interesting to see how that manifests itself in the political realm. Because you're going to have a lot of people that don't have habits to break. They don't have any habit of being, you know, lifelong we vote the straight ticket for the last 19 generations. Well, they're floating around. They're looking for something. They're Most not. voters are churchgoers. They're ticket splitters, and, too. And they have not put the connect, made a connection between their faith and their political affiliation and voting. Well, I think for a lot of uh, people in both parties, uh, to suggest that they leave a party is like suggesting they leave their church. It's particularly difficult for those for whom they're... Well, Politics has become their religion. Well, you have ethnic groups who are wedded to the Democratic Party. That's right. And there's a self-interest involved because they feel that the party does something for them. It has, it sends Rostenkowski to, to Congress. <laughs> uh, it sends Teddy Kennedy to yes. Congress. Mm -hmm. But that's... Instead of jail where he belongs. Uh, yes. I've noticed a big fear in Christians that when we're talking about a third party, they think oftentimes that if there is a third party and it does capture a significant percentage of the vote, that will ensure a democratic victory in the next election. How, how do you respond to that? Well, that's your short attention span again. Right. I, we know the reason. How do you, I guess, how do you well, convince them that it would be a good idea anyway? interesting thing in this last election was that the Democrats welcomed the Republican victory of Bush because they control Congress and it was easier to buffalo a Republican president than work with a strong Democratic president. That's true and also every group that manages to organize itself into impressive numbers in this country immediately has political clout. You don't have to win an election mm -hmm. to win. Well I think Tim puts his uh, finger on a very important question. Uh, a lot of Christians uh, seem not to want to do anything in the president in, in the present unless you can assure them what happens in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and to me, a person who consistently thinks like that—that's strong, to lose. strong yeah. evidence that they're not very Christian. Because we don't—I mean, there's a sense in which Christians don't do the future. That's, that's the job is to, the idea is to do what's right now. And the future is in the hands of God. Exactly. And yes. uh, I know that a lot of Christians <clears throat> sort of become de facto relativists in their thinking. For example, I, over the years uh, and, and early on in his first administration, was a very strong critic of Reagan. And I saw the reaction to my criticism uh, was one of, well, Reagan is better than Mondale, isn't he? You know, well, he's better than Hitler, isn't he? Well, he's better than the devil, isn't he? And I kept saying, you know, this is an interesting question. Uh, the answer is, I don't know, all three of those uh, uh, prove it, is what I say. But the interesting thing is that we started out saying that what we were to measure Reagan by as Christians was uh, would be Christianity, and then his own promises, or the party platform, but all that was quickly just thrown away. And uh, so you couldn't be... Uh, you couldn't criticize Reagan because you might bring in a Mondale 
And you might. I don't know, but you might not. That's another point. The whole the United States has gotten into this genteel goodness party where you're not supposed to criticize anybody or anything. That That's yes. breaking up the party. Mm -hmm. uh, negative campaigning. Oh, I love that. The attack, the negative attack. The negative campaigning well, consisting of describing the man's record. Well, but I, I wrote a whole piece one time, it was a rather tedious piece, about uh, how people were just too negative about negativism. Well, that was the whole problem that they should be more positive. Well, we should have a little, you know, let's, let's get a few more Dobermans in this act. <laughs> that was for Mrs. Gloucester. She'll remember that piece. But uh, the attack on negative campaigning is, it, is itself negative. Of course it is. People are campaigning against I mean, negative campaigning. We can't even speak straight English because we don't want to be negative. And most people vote against somebody. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, not often enough do they vote against him because too many are elected. But uh, I think something is happening here. A number of people who have been traditional Republicans and Democrats. It starts out that what we're it starts out the way we're doing it right now. Of course, we're doing it on tape. But uh, it starts out with word of mouth. talking. It starts out with word of mouth. It Somebody. starts out that listen, this is a big country. We've got more highly skilled people than any country has ever created in the history of the world but they're all too specialized. They don't want to think beyond their specialty. They have no opinion beyond their specialty. Yes. Uh, I used to be squelched every so often by somebody who would say to me, did you study that? Hmm. Meaning, did I have a, yes. uh, Did I go to school? Where and did, did I sit in the classroom? And did somebody testify to the fact yes. that I'd studied it? By the way, could I uh, briefly uh, solicit... Uh, uh, some mail on this issue here uh, about uh, f as far as our listeners are concerned and, and if the mail's too uh, voluminous uh, you can ship it to me and I'll sort it and mark it uh, why not give them your address right uh -huh. now and ask that it be okay. shipped to you alright why not I was just about to do that <laughs> sure I was uh, to let us know what you think about this third party idea and uh, if so what kind of party and what ought to be the issues uh uh, that it ought to stress. Uh, you can send this uh, mail to my house, to John Lofton, uh, 313, 313 Montgomery Street, in Laurel, Maryland, L-A-U-R-E-L, Maryland, uh, 20707. The reason why I think it should be sent to you, because you're in a position to share it with people who will be interested in this and are on the Washington scene politically. Yes, I am un 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 uncomfortably close to those people. It's true. <laughs> it tickled me, you know. There was third-party talk a few years ago when uh, I tried to get Lester Maddox to run with. I even forget. <laughs> that was a ridiculous effort. It was a ridiculous uh, effort. It was ridiculous. And, and when Lester Maddox wound up as the, as the winner, it made it even more ridiculous. It was uh, not the kind of thing I have in mind now, but... Uh, I remember the Republican Party officials were so historically ignorant that they just repeatedly were sent out across the country to attack the idea of a new party. And uh, nobody ever did stand up and ask him if they knew that their own party started. As a third party. That's right. That's and a right. radical party, too. Oh, oh, yes, absolutely. Very radical. I guess... Uh, With some very seedy characters at uh, the uh, founding thereof. Indeed. Yeah, I remember Mary Lou Smith, the Republican... Uh, 
National Committee woman from Iowa. She she spoke as if uh, Moses had brought down the Ten Commandments and uh, the Republican Party. That it was just sort of like food. It, it was. It was always there. <laughs> not hardly. And it may not be there much longer. A lot of people think it really, in no real sense, now is there. Well, when you see the rapidity with which these enormous crowds have appeared in Middle Europe, once the mm-hmm. once the police were told not to kill them, yes, you get some idea of the pent-up frustrations of people. We have tremendous frustrations in this country, and if you don't believe it, just drive along the freeway and look mm. at the other guy. You know, I'd like to uh, say to anyone who thinks that uh, we're totally all wet <laughs> and that the Republican Party or the Democratic Party uh, is really terrific, uh, to, to spell out for me what you think are the significant differences between the parties anymore. I, I, I'm, I'm there at ground zero. I certainly don't see them, but uh, I'm interested if anybody thinks there are well, I think real there differences. Are differences. Yes. I won't mention names, but I think the one party is made up of crooks and the other of stupid people. (laughs) Well, there you are. Stupid and cowardly people. I would say the the Democratic Party has got more courage than the Republican Party. So far as I can see, the Republican Party is all neutered. Well, that's what I... It's the Capon Party. (laughs) And the other party, of course, is is the the Cowbird Party that lays its eggs in other people's nests. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, Newt Newt Gingrich looked very much like a Capon when they brought him out to the press conference to read his lines. Really pathetic. The Republican Party hasn't got the nerve to govern. And the other party hasn't got the brains. Take that. <laughs> well, John, our time is just about up. Do you want to make a last statement before we uh, conclude? Well, I'm, I'm not uh, sure that I want a party that calls itself a Christian party. Uh, uh, I don't think necessarily should no. arrogate that title, but I think they should try to be godly yes. and Christian without exploiting the name. That's the point. Yes. I think it can be said that we've given this two-party thing a, an honest chance to work. <laughs> Maybe yes. we've Since been 1860. Yeah, I think we've not rushed into this third-party idea. Uh, I really think something's happening now. I tell you, I did, at the risk of belaboring the point, when Pat Buchanan talks about a third party and uh, he, he, he was pretty close to advocacy there. That is very significant. You want to give your address once again yes. before we end. Send us those cards and letters. <laughs> Turning this into a talk show. Or a write show, anyway. Uh, send it to uh, me, John Lofton, at 313 Montgomery Street in Laurel, Maryland, L-A-U-R-E-L, Maryland, uh, 20707. Well, thank you all for listening, and thank you, John. And God bless you all. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.